The Spectator is searching for the UK's brightest entrepreneurs to enter the Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year awards, in partnership with Charles Stanley Wealth Managers. If you have a business that disrupts an existing market, a smart new way of doing things, or something that has incredible social impact, then apply by 1st of July at spectator.co.uk/innovator. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is a public relations expert who has worked for two prime ministers. She led Boris Johnson's mayoral campaign before going on to become the first female director of communications in number 10 for Theresa May. However, she left her role after the announcement of the 2017 SNAP election, following issues with May's top aides, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill. Reflecting on her time in May's Downing Street, she said, Great leaders lead by bringing people with them not alienating them before having even digested breakfast. She has had her own practice, in-house communications, since 2006, and its clients include spirits maker Diageo, and more recently, the Football Super League. Reflecting recently on a career working in Westminster, she said, I've worked in politics for most of my adult life, and I can hand on heart say that I don't think I would want my children to work in Parliament at this point. My guest today is Katie Perrier. So Katie, thank you very much for joining us today. To begin on this podcast, we ask, did you have a happy childhood? I had a perfectly normal suburban upbringing where my dad went to work and my mum stayed at home and I went to a not very good performing school locally, which did influence my view of education. So I have certain views about school ever since. And then my dad passed away when I was 15, unexpectedly, in the night. And so everything changed at 15. My mum couldn't really cope. And so she had several bouts of really bad depression and bipolar disorder. And so I was basically an adult at that point. And I fended for myself at that point. So from the age of about 15, 16, all the choices that I've made in life are mine, good and bad. And it gave me a really good insight into what it's like for children to lose parents at an early age but also what it's like to grow up in a household where you put the key in the lock and you're not quite sure what you're going to find. At that point did you feel as though you were almost taking on the adult role did you have to look after your mother a lot? Yeah and I have ever since really she lives eight doors away from me we check on her all the time we do our shopping for her we make sure she's okay. Family is important to me but I realised at that point that I could flunk and I could do nothing all day long or I could try and get some grades and I could try and be the first in my family to go to university and I just wanted more I was quite gobby at school I was quite ambitious I got promoted to the school council and campaigned for children young girls to be able to wear trousers and the head teacher called me aside and said since we changed the rules not one girl has chosen to wear trousers I said yeah I don't want to wear trousers I roll my skirt up as far as I can get it I just want the right to wear trousers successful early campaign to put on your CV there. You've previously said that being the director of communications at Number 10 had been your dream since you were 16 years old. We've asked a lot of guests on this podcast what their early ambitions are. Lots of things come up, but never that. I mean, it's very specific. So were you closely observing politics of an early age? Was that coming from your family? or No, nobody in my family was political. Basically, I went to college and I wanted to do business studies and I liked the programme LA Law and so I thought I'd be a lawyer or I'd work in business. And you needed three A-levels to be able to stay full-time at college. And they said, go and walk around the building on the open day and speak to various different people. And I bumped into a politics lecturer and I said, I'm not interested in politics. And he said, 
but you've just told me that you had a no smoking campaign in your own household to stop your parents smoking. You made your teacher do stuff at school that you didn't want, want to do. You know, you got yourself elected on the school council. You're inherently political. I said, I, I didn't realise I was. And I was hooked. And my business studies A-level was mediocre. My law A-level was mediocre. I was destined to want to go and study politics. And at what point did you become party political? Truthfully, when I left university, I was broke and I needed to go and earn some money. So I went to the recruiters. All my friends were deciding they're going to do a gap year or they were going to go off on a holiday. And I went to the recruiter and said, I need money. What's the best paid job you've got here? And they said, working on a trading floor. I'm rubbish at maths. And I said, that's brilliant. Sounds perfect for me. So I went and spent a year on the trading floor with lots of people who were kind of from Kent and Essex and were, you know, boys made good. Not very many females at the time. And they all said to me, you don't belong here. You really do belong in politics. You should start applying. And at that time, if the Labour Party had accepted me, I probably would have gone to work for the Labour Party. So I wasn't inherently... I wasn't a student you apply for No, I applied for what was out there at the market at the time. And it was a junior runner in the Conservative Party press office under Amanda Patel and Nitwood. And my job was to run around looking after press officers all day long and organise things like party conferences. And how did you find it? So Loved what, it. what were the scenes like? Oh, look, right, we're in opposition with no money, and it was terrible, terrible kind of, you know, mishaps one day from, from the next. Tony Blair was at his height. I was given responsibility that I would never have been given. And I always say to people now, you know what, if, if there's something's going really, really wrong and you think you can help fix it, your time will come. Go and do the stuff that isn't attractive. Everyone wants to work at, you know, for government at that time. So everyone's applying to work for government or they're sitting the civil service fast stream tests. And there's a little on me going, I want to go and work for you know, a party that no one is interested in at the moment. No one wants to talk to us. We are deeply unpopular. And I, I was taught so much. I learnt so much and I loved it I mean at the time of course I wanted to be paid more of course I didn't like the hours of course I thought that some of the things we were doing were rubbish but I've got massive rose tinted glasses now because if I look back I, I really loved it so you're in your role for the Conservative Party and there comes a point when you decide to go your separate ways and you've spoken a little bit about how obviously after your father passed away you had to be very responsible for yourself and for others so was that down to money there's been some reports that the salary that you were on was not substantial so my first time at the conservative party i doubled my salary overnight by going somewhere else i'd worked for Theresa may at the time she did the nasty party speech i was part of that team with her at the time i left shortly after to go to private sector I had a stint at ITV and Channel 4 News, which I loved because I learned about the newsroom. And I learned about a newsroom that wasn't very you know, positive towards the Conservative government at the time. I was named the token Tory by Jon Snow and a couple of others, which I, I took in good, good humour. They were a great team, brilliant at, at news reporting. And so by the time I went back to Tories years later, I'd kind of doubled my money. And that was quite important to me in terms of the fact that, you know, I was mid-20s. I was working for David Davis as Shadow Home Secretary. Uh, we had some great hits, although David was a workaholic. And he'd have me up at two o'clock in the morning writing press releases and stuff. And then I decided that actually I really wanted to go and start my own business. And it was shortly after that that Boris came to us via other people and they said he wants to be mayor of London we think you guys would be really good at working with him and and do that campaign it was a 10 month campaign which I learned so much on and also was able to say look I might not be the most intelligent person in the room but I know what people want from their politicians and I it's quite important to me that you know some of the things that we were trying to do with Boris at the time 
you know, he was not well moulded into the to the role of, of Mary London. And I have hope that we, we helped him on that journey to get there. I don't know if you would call yourself a spin doctor. Uh, <laughs> it's, the, it's a phrase that's often used. It's not one that spin doctors use themselves. But I wonder, I mean, obviously you get lots of very different clients, different politicians you have to work with. You spoke about, you know, briefly Theresa May, David Davis. What's it like when you uh, present with someone like Boris Johnson, particularly at that point, quite unlike most other candidates? Well, you can't get Boris to do anything that he doesn't want to do himself. You know, other people would be quite happy to listen and say, OK, right, I'll change the way I do that. Boris would, would listen, but he wouldn't change the way he did it. And so it's quite a difficult job to master. What I felt that was important is that my business partner, Joe Tanner, and I, we both have a connection with people in London who that he wanted their votes. And so whilst he was not a natural offer to London, you know, his constituency was Henley, Oxfordshire type place beforehand. And so he really didn't necessarily know what Londoners wanted of him. And we did because you know, we live and breathe it. And so we were able to say to him about these are the policies we think are going to be strong in London. You know, you what what do you do you really care about? Okay, well we can translate those into things that matter to Londoners on the ground. And we got him out because the more that we got Boris out on the road, the more it dawned on us that he was unlike any other politician we have ever worked for. Because he had superstar status and they wanted to touch him. They wanted his signature, they wanted a selfie and, you know, phones weren't really taking lots of photos back in the day then. Anyone that had a camera on them got themselves a selfie. They, they couldn't get enough of him and it was unlike any politician I'd ever, I'd ever worked for. Now, you have a successful campaign. After that, you later go on to have the role in Downing Street. But what happens between then and there to, to get you to that position? So if I'd pound for every time someone said to me, oh, you're nice girls, pat pat on the head, but you're, you're not going to win this Boris campaign, you know. We were 12 points behind in the polls. Everybody just forgets about how hard that was. It was just such a hard dig-in kind of campaign where we were constantly polling, we were constantly, you know, trying to move the dial. And there was so much that went on in that campaign that it allowed us to go ahead and start our own business properly. And so we built up a client base. Afterwards, was it, was it a game changer for you? It was a game changer for us because up until that point, people didn't really think that we would do it. And it was kind of like, oh, they're sweet. They'll do a good job. They'll work hard, but he won't win. And when we won, of course, it was kind of like, oh, of course he was going to win. It's Boris Johnson. He's, you know, he's groundbreaking. He breaks all the moulds. It's kind of like, well, there's actually a really hard team behind him. The likes of Linton Crosby I learned a huge amount from in terms of campaigning you know we would be in a scenario whereby you'd have Ken would talk about transport and buses we would all start talking about transport buses and Linton was kind of like what the hell are you doing talking about his subject and I've never done it again you know that's what you learn when you're 26 year old you learn and you learn from the best so we went off to start our business we had young families which is a hard thing to do in Westminster if you want to stay in a press office environment trying to juggle families and work and so we did it our way and we wanted it to work for us And so we built up this business, taking on lots of different corporate clients, individual campaigns, charities, all kinds of different clients that have something about them that needs a political kind of advice and guidance. And then Theresa May. And then, you know, I thought Boris Johnson was naturally going to be the next prime minister. We all know what happened there. Theresa came to the forefront and I was helping her out for a few weeks because I'd worked with her previously when she did the Nazi party speech. And so they asked me to go into number 10 and do this job. So I left my job in-house and started at number 10 the next day. 
And you mentioned, obviously, the turmoil of that period. You had a situation where, obviously, David Cameron resigns. Then we have, everyone thinks Boris Johnson is going to be the next prime minister. Then we have a Michael Gove situation, which means that Boris Johnson drops out. So did you have to kind of explain to Boris Johnson, who you previously worked with, why you were helping Theresa May? Or was it not really like that in, in terms of work? It went so quickly. It went really, really quickly. And I was helping out, but still trying to run the business at the same time. And... I was seriously helping out in terms of, like, you know, I was dedicated to helping her win, but it wasn't a case of him calling me up and, you know, freaking out over it. Um, it all went so quickly. And then, before you know it, we're organising a thank you speech to MPs and we are walking into number 10. And when you get that formal offer of Director of Number 10 Communications, obviously we talked earlier about how it's an early ambition. Are you over the moon? Are you a bit surprised? Are you panicked when I say it's an early ambition it was an early ambition to be at the top of my game to be someone that was a political communicator that I didn't it wasn't that job in particular but it was an early ambition to I'm a bit like it now if my children decide they want to bake for a living I'm like great but you're going to own 20 different bakeries right you're going to be the best that you can be at that job and so it was the ambition to be I want to do this for a living and so I want to be at the top of my game and so I turned it down twice because I owed it to my family and to my business to say no. And then my husband called me up and said, you will always, always resent us for saying no. And you will regret it. And I don't want to live with someone that regrets those kind of opportunities. So you have to do it even though it's going to be hell for us. And I'll see you on the other side. Which is probably the kindest gift he could ever have given me. And so on the third time of offering, which was made clear this would be the last offer, I accepted And you've written quite a bit about your time in number 10 and also your great hopes, you know, when it came to first coming in, you know, the burning injustices that you had on the wall. So you were clearly very passionate about what Theresa May was promising in terms of that agenda. But what was it like when you first started that role, I suppose? Was it, you know, meeting your expectations initially? No, because stupidly, I, I never worked in government before. And of course, I'm working with people that have been in the Home Office for several years. So they understand how government works. And I think I know how government works, but I don't truly know until I get inside government. And I genuinely thought, and this sounds ridiculous and stupid, and I realise how stupid it sounds. I genuinely thought someone was going to rock up at some point and say, these are your responsibilities. This is your role. And this is how you're going to deliver that role. And after two weeks, two, three weeks, I realised no one was coming. And no one had said to me, you know, you're responsible for the events and visits team or you're not responsible for the events and visiting. You're responsible for spads, but you're not responsible for hiring and firing spads. It was very messy and I never really knew. And every time I asked, I got a different answer. What am I responsible for? And then I can shape it and then they know that I'm responsible for them. And then, you know, and so it was always very, very difficult because one week I was responsible for some things, especially when they went wrong. And then I wasn't responsible anymore. And so, you know, it's moving goalposts a lot. And so it was a lesson to me that sometimes and my friends that go and work in government now, I always say to them, no one is going to rock up and tell you how to do this job. And so you must take the ball by the horns very early on and guide that because otherwise it will guide you. So it's fair to say it was overwhelming? It was overwhelming. And I don't think that it would have been different for anybody else in that role. I don't think it's overwhelming because I was an outsider or I'm not a natural Westminster bubble person or I'm not highly educated in terms of Oxford or Cambridge. It would have been overwhelming for anybody because David Cameron had a couple of years in opposition. 
He got to work out what he liked about his team, what he didn't like about his team, what he could bin off. Theresa May turned up and started work. And we all had to, you know, do the same. And it wasn't just Theresa May you had to answer to. There was also Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, at the time two very infamous advisors, who briefly had a lot of power in Westminster. And I think we always hear about an all-powerful number 10 centre trying to take power away, but they earned quite the reputation. <laughs> You've spoken a bit about how number 10 was dysfunctional. How, how did it manifest itself when it came to working with them? It was really difficult. I mean, I've softened over the years on it because time is a great healer, right? And at the time, I was incredibly bitter because this big opportunity that came my way that it was down to them, don't forget, they, they got Theresa May into number 10. And so you know, Nick and Fiona got me that job. So I'm not sitting here saying that it was all my doing. But what I would say is that I was quite bitter because I really wanted it to work. And I work hard. And if anyone, my clients know me, I'm a two o'clock in the morning worker. I will put in all the hours God sends. And it didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter how much, how hard I tried. It wasn't working. And it, it was the first time really in my life that I had to accept that because I'm a fixer. I fix stuff for my clients all the time. I fix stuff for my staff, fix stuff for my family. And I couldn't fix it. And that really kind of got to me, I think. And you're talking a bit earlier about how you sometimes hard to work out what would fall into your role as Director of Communications and what would fall into others. There was one thing when I was reading ahead of this, so Trousergate. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> rather flimsy in the grand scheme of things, but at the time it was rare. And I think with Theresa May, because she entered Downing Street on such a high and because the polls were initially so high, it was hard to pinpoint when exactly things changed. But it was obviously, I mean, we can talk about the dementia tax, but ultimately there were a series of events before it which seemed to I suppose start to land in people this idea that perhaps she wasn't as in tune with the people she was talking about or as in, as on top of things as people first believed and Trousergate was when she posed in some very expensive <laughs> trousers and you said in the past that actually that was Fiona Hill he was pushing for that but surely that's a slight comms decision if it's for an interview and that's where the crossover came all the time, uh, whereby those decisions weren't mine. So what people didn't realise at the time is that I'd washed my hands of the whole thing internally and I refused to get involved in any of it. So I'd briefed the Prime Minister and we'd run through Q&A the day before and I was fine and happy that Eleanor Mills was turning up to interview the Prime Minister. That wasn't a problem. I'd said to the PM, right, we've been offered makeup, we've been offered styling what is it you want and she said I might take a bit of makeup I might take someone to, to, to help with my hair and stuff because I'm rushing from one meeting to another but I will want to wear what I want to wear and I said fine because you always look great and that's not my problem for me and so um, I will let them know that if they bring someone that can do hair and makeup that'd be great but no styling required and then I was told that, that was the most ridiculous decision I could ever make and very expensive clothes and shoes were rushed in overnight to be worn the next day I thought the whole thing was hideous and I complained and said this is not the just about managing you don't wear £2,000 worth of gear for an interview like that £600 trainers that of course you know never been worn and never wouldn't be worn since and it just wasn't for me it wasn't Theresa May and I was upset that she did it because I think she should have said no and I remember walking away from the meeting someone came and briefed me afterwards and I said how did it go because I refused to stay in the room I said I don't want anything to do with this whatsoever this is not what I want I'll be at my desk if anyone wants me. You said previously that there are a few times when Theresa May would stand up to Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy, but they were few and far between. Was your impression up close then that this was a Prime Minister who 
ultimately wasn't in charge of her stuff when it came to her top stuff. I think it's really, really difficult because if you think about it, your staff were integral in getting you in the door at number 10. Theresa May would not have been Prime Minister without Nick and Fiona. And people think that just because I'm you know, very grumpy with them and I didn't like working with them, that I don't appreciate that. And she, she would have known that too. And I think that it's very, very difficult. What I think is that also there is this scenario, you touched upon it earlier, Katie, where you talked about the fact that there's this big kind of personalities at the heart of number 10 but we big them up in the media too we big them up to be you know these untouchable grumpy uh, my way on the highway type people and someone has to call the shots and someone has to direct things because you know that person has never been prime minister before and did she lean on her advisors too much yes she should have probably taken the reins earlier and and be more in control but you know that was the relationship they had and I sometimes think that future prime ministers need to learn from that and maybe don't go down that route so much. And why did you decide to leave then? I mean, obviously you've kind of <laughs> hinted at that quite heavily. It might even be too light. But was there a trigger point? I'd wanted to leave for a while. I was deeply, deeply unhappy. And I was coming to terms with the fact that I was failing in this job because I really, really wanted it to work. And I did. I, I implemented all kinds of strategies to make it work. And they didn't work. None of them worked. What type all. of strategies? Oh, you know, don't rise to it. Don't be so offended or thin-skinned. By your other colleagues. Yeah. yeah. Just get on with it. Just get on with it. Just ignore it. Let it go over your head. Don't rise to it. Just, just constantly perform to the best of your ability. So I had some wins. We went to America with Trump and everybody on the plane on the way back was saying, Katie, that was all you're doing. It was brilliant. Well done. And I said, if you let me do it, I will do a good job for you. But I'm not allowed to do it a lot of the time. And that's the most frustrating thing for me. So I wanted an out, but I didn't want an out that looked like a row. And I didn't want an out that looked like I was walking and turning my back on the prime minister. So I took the opportunity that when that election came, I knew that my exit would be paragraph five, paragraph six, instead of the lead type, you know, headline. And I took the opportunity to go because it's wrong of me to say that I thought the election was going to be a disaster. I didn't. But I did think that the support for Theresa May was built on quicksand and their confidence in that election was overblown. And so I didn't really want anything to do with it. It was clear they didn't want me as well. And you don't really want to be with someone and a team if they don't want you because... I was very jealous of the Cameron era because even now, if you criticise David Cameron on radio and TV, one of them will send you a message saying, that's bang out of order. That's not, that's incorrect. That's not right. David would never have done that. I love that about that team because they are a proper unit. They, they covered each other's backs. They worked hard together. Yes, they might have had their little scraps or whatever it might be, but they believed in their principle and they worked hard for him until their dying day. I wanted that and I didn't get it. And so there's a lesson there about leadership, teamwork, and, you know, how it can all go wrong. And yeah, treating people with respect. <laughs> That's kind of quite important. Do you think that election result would have been at all different had you stayed on? No, because I was not allowed to do the things I wanted to do. And my opinions weren't really listened to. If they had been, she would never have worn the trousers. So there's a, there's a catalogue. I mean, the trousers were, were a very public thing, but there was a catalogue of things where I would advise something and something different would happen. And I'd be sitting there thinking, I've got the director of commerce on my business card. People on the outside world think that I'm the big I am. I'm not allowed to do anything here. And how much longer can I put up with that? So no, I don't think it would have been any different. Now, while you're in that role, 
you became part of a gender pay gap scandal when it was revealed that your predecessor, Robbie Gibb, was being paid more than you. I think that's £15,000 more. How does that feel when that came out? Did you feel as though, you know, you've been let down by the people doing the salaries? Did you feel as though, for example, oh, maybe in my head that makes sense because that person has done this? What was going through your mind? Well, when I was offered the job, I'm the breadwinner in my household. Money's quite important to me. And I know that's really un... You know, that's not an attractive thing for a female to say, but I don't care. Uh, you know, well, that's my, why I wonder, just because I think sometimes women can be a bit guilty of being like, oh, I understand, uh, you know, and I justifying was, it. And I was brought up by my mum, which was kind of, you're very lucky to have whatever job you're given in the future, whether it's a typist or whether or not, you know, get to whatever job you, you'll be in. In fact, I, t- I took her once to Buckingham Palace garden party and she just went around thanking everybody for hiring me. It was really embarrassing. And so, you know, I've always been taught to be grateful. And I am. I'm grateful, very much grateful for any of my clients that are listening right now. Um, uh, but I knew what was happening because it was a power thing. I was told that when I started to work at number 10, I would be on the top salary, the same as the chief of staff. A civil servant then comes in a couple of months later, it's when they're still not sorted it all out, and says, actually, we're going to cut that pay. We're cutting it down to uh, £15,000 less on the basis that you can't be on the same salary as the others. So I had no choice. I mean, they could have literally cut it in half and I would have still had to say yes. I had no choice but to accept it. And I haggled a little bit, got another 5000 or whatever, but basically I had to accept it. The gentleman before me in that job got paid more and the gentleman after me in that job got paid more. And I had lawyers calling me up when I left number 10 saying, we will act for you, you should sue the Prime Minister. I'm not suing a member of the Conservative Party. I am a paid-up 25-year member of the Conservative Party. So I put it down to one of those things. So does that mean it was the other aides on higher salaries who nicked him and Fiona Hill who were the ones who wanted to be at the top of that and the Prime Minister then goes along with it? I'm not even sure the Prime Minister knew. This was just sorted between uh, civil servants and the chiefs of staff and we just had to take whatever it was they decided. Do you still stay in touch with Theresa May? After that result came through, did you reach out to her? No, there was talk. One member of the cabinet at the time said, look, there are things that Theresa May will have to change and one of them is kind of a top team the cabinet enjoyed working with you we would be happy to recommend that she takes you back and I said you can't enforce someone on someone when it's at that level they really want to have them or they don't and I think my time there is done the worst thing was that when lots of people went back a couple of months later they called me and said you know what you'd love it here now you'd love it here now because there's none of that fear there's none of that horrendousness. We just are desperately trying to work hard on behalf of Theresa May and this Conservative government. And we know you would have pitched in. And we're just a bit sad that you had you have bad memories. But, you know, as I say, as time goes on, I look back on my time in softer, rose-tinted lenses and less angry and bitter. So you don't regret taking the job? Oh, my God, no. I don't regret it at all. I've got friends that get offered jobs at number 10 and cabinet office and others, and I say to them, yes, it's going to be horrendous. Yes, you're not going to like it very much. You must take that job. You must take it. I take it again in a heartbeat. Now, just a few, I suppose, final things. And, you know, one is, I mean, you've spoken about having young children. How have you found kind of balancing that, particularly with the number 10 job? Did your husband basically pick up all the slack or did you just have to almost step out of that role for a bit or could you combine it? He had to pick up all the slack. Even though I was told that they would be very respectful, I was the only senior person at number 10 with children, uh, young children at the time, it was not a job for someone that was trying to juggle both. And he picked up all the slack. And I had to just give in, you know. I'd get home at night and think, 
Does no one in this house know that these bath towels smell and they need to be washed? Why have my children had fish and breadcrumbs again for dinner? Right, but you just have to get over it because they're being fed, everybody's healthy, everybody's washed, everybody's going to school, getting good grades. You're just going to have to get over it. There is a large number of women in Westminster that don't talk about the fact that they can only do what they do because they have really supportive other halves at home. It's not cool to talk about it because we want to make out that we can do it all ourselves, that we're super women and we can juggle everything. We can't. We need help. And we need to make sure that we should, you know, be not ashamed to admit that. You've spoken about you and your business partner's company. I have in my notes, you refer to yourselves as the Fortnum and Masons of Communications Specialist in Crisis Communication. I don't refer to myself as that. Boris Johnson called us that. When we left, when we left his campaign, he said to us, you're the only few people that don't want to work for me in City Hall. Why is that? And we said, because we just want to see if we can make it. We want to know if we can make our own luck. And if we can't, we'll come back and lick your shoes for a living. And we said, can we have something nice that you can say about us? And he said that. And so I might take that off the website now, though. It's becoming a little bit too, too much. Can you talk us through a day in the life of crisis comms for those who um, have maybe just seen Scandal? <laughs> There's no two days that are ever the same. That's why this job is so great, right? Because we could be stuck doing the same job, doing it day in, day out. I had one year in banking and I realised that if you actually want some excitement in your life and you want to be challenged on a day-to-day basis, you don't stay there. You know, for me, you know, I, I love what I do. My job now is to try and find tomorrow's talent. You know, we're building an agency, 20 staff, I've got to go out and find the really, really good ones and then nurture them and, and give them support and mentoring. And that's kind of what I like doing. Now, I've mentioned the word crisis comms, so I'm going to mention the fact that your company was brought in to help with the Super League. How did that go? Well, I have more success in politics than I do in football. And if you think that politics can be a bit tricky and not everyone always tells the truth and you've got to read between the lines, you have not spent a day in football. And let me say that that was a day too long. And I hop-skipped back to my normal life with my normal clients as soon as possible. I've never met so many liars in one week. Let's just put it that way. Okay, we'll we'll leave that one there. Um, Now, very final quick questions. One is, I mean, you served as a local councillor previously. Do you think you'll ever return to elective politics, having seen things up close? No, and I don't know why people want to do it. I mean, we should be really thankful that they want to do it at every single level of government. I can't stand the way that politicians in the UK are treated because it's an awful job in terms of they, the, the time is never their own they could earn twice as much in the, in the private sector and yet they genuinely care when I my friends are at home that have nothing to do with politics moan about politicians all the time they genuinely think that they are in it for themselves they are on the gravy train that it's all about you know promotion self-promotion and of course you will get a few bad eggs but the majority of them work so hard for their constituents. I think they get a really, really bad reputation all the way through. Local government, they are the unsung heroes as far as I'm concerned. Are you the person who gets in fights on behalf of politicians' reputations at parties? All the time. And I should imagine they pick up the glass and move quietly away from me because it's, it's just so you know unattractive as an argument. But it's the truth. And I am the one that sits there and says that actually politicians are to be trusted and they do work really hard for you but no one really believes it I mean you know local authority you're in rows over adult social care what how much money you can spend on children in care which is you know going through the roof you know how much can you spend on road repairs 
people were never happy and it was a great learning curve I spent most of my 20s you know people that I know spent most of their 20s in nightclubs I spent most of my 20s in council chambers it makes me very sad I need to get out more Hopefully we can get more soon uh, if this roadmap finally happens. But, but I just want to very briefly, you spoke a bit about Theresa May and the fact that, you know, there was that sense that she had very high stop, but it was quicksand. So looking at Boris Johnson, someone you've worked with, how do you think he is sitting politically? Because again, very high in the polls. There's some Tory strategy to actually think almost too high on the polls because it starts to breed a little bit of complacency whether that's intentional or subconscious what do you think his position looks like right now in terms of challenges i think boris is unique and there is a lot of love for boris in the country and so you have something that Theresa may and david cameron and many other politicians have never experienced and never will experience that makes politicians jealous by the way they're always jealous of working twice as hard and having half as much adoration as boris johnson does And I think there is an issue whereby, for example, if I was advising Keir Starmer and the Labour Party right now, I'd say you can attack this government quite well on a number of different points, but you shouldn't attack Boris Johnson because you're making a mistake. Every time you try and drag Boris Johnson into this, he's kind of a bit untouchable at the moment. I don't say it's ever going to happen or ever going to you know, move in the wrong direction, but I do think that there is a difference between pulling in the fact that this Conservative government hasn't delivered on something, such as adult social care, or you can attack the fact that their foreign aid cuts go too far. But bringing Boris into that suddenly you know, means that they're slightly untouchable and the polls keep on going up in the right direction for Conservatives. So there's a, I, I would split it. I think there's a difference. Boris himself, I think he has that gambler mentality where he put all his chips onto vaccinations and if he keeps on reminding people of that he'll be fine and he'll keep on telling people that when the time came when the moment hit he made the right decision and I think pretty much broadly most people agree on that but you can look at a conservative government in the last couple of years of course you could argue well of course we couldn't do that because of pandemic and you can start to pick apart some of the some of the things that have gone on And I think that that might be the, the long-term failing, whereas Boris has a slightly different public persona to, to that Conservative government. Theresa May was the Conservative government. David Cameron was the Conservative government. You've got Boris Johnson and you've got Conservative government, and I think he should carry on doing that. It was exactly the same as Mayor of London. You know, as Mayor of London, people didn't think about him and all the boring stuff, such as the potholes in the road. They thought of Boris as this kind of mass campaigner, anti-establishment. And uh, I think that he's on a winning ticket there. Labour are looking for a director of communications at the moment. Thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> so the last question on this podcast, Katie, is one we ask everyone, which is, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Probably don't work in politics in the first place, because here I am, that you'll never really amount to anything. And, oh, the, the one of the best pieces of very bad advice I was given was from the great Alan Duncan. The diarist. Indeed. <laughs> who said to me, you will never make it in politics unless you get yourself some elocution lessons pronto. So I went home, it was around Christmas time, I said to my mum, would you buy me some elocution lessons for Christmas? She agreed. I mentioned it in passing to my boss and lifetime mentor, Nick Wood, who absolutely hit the roof and said, over my dead body, are you having elocution lessons? Why do you want to sound like everyone else? And I dropped the idea. And here you are. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any of our many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. Hold up. 